Welcome to today's audio podcast, a sermon teaching from Grace Bible Church of Akron. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of GBC and would like to enjoy more resources and weekly updates, we hope you will visit our website at gbcakron.org. Please take a moment to let us know how this ministry is impacting your life by emailing us at info at gbcakron.org. That's I-N-F-O at gbcakron.org. Also, if you would like to support Grace Bible Church, you may do so by visiting gbcakron.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. So we began this series last week from paper to practice, and we are focusing for the next few weeks on the purpose of applying God's word, right? We talked about how here at Grace, we have a path of discipleship, and we have five different things that we focus on as disciples of Christ, and one of those things is taking what we read in God's word on paper and putting it into practice in our lives. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about that as Christians, there are times in our lives where we shelve God's good gifts. One of those good gifts is the Bible. And we put it on a shelf, whether it's literally we put it on a shelf and we don't open it, right? That's how we shelve God's word. We actually shelve it. Or we never take it from paper to practice. We never put it into action. And one of the major purposes of the Bible for us as Christians is for us to grow in spiritual maturity, Right, so this is one of the main reasons God has given us his word is so that we can grow in spiritual maturity. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all of scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I believe this with all my heart, that if we are to enter into a period of growth, into a period of reaching new heights, so to speak, in our spiritual journey, that we have to allow God's word to work in our lives so that we can grow. But see, one of the key important ingredients to growth is this. You have to have mind shifts. You have to have mind shifts to spiritually grow. And understand what I mean by mind shift, and I share with you kind of a silly story. So years ago, this would have been June of 2011, I had just graduated from college and I moved to West Texas, and I had just kind of settled in, it was maybe one or two weeks into my first full-time ministry job, and one of the, well, a set of my coworkers invited me to the gym, okay? It's been a while since I had been in there. I just would move across the country. And they said, hey, Stephen, on Tuesday morning, you have no option. You're joining this gym. You're going to meet us there. Those two individuals, one was Ashley's dad, Michael Courtney, who at the time was not my father-in-law, but is now my father-in-law. And then an old youth pastor and mentor of mine, Tyler Press. And they said, meet us at the gym, 7.30, we're going to lift some weights. And so when I got there, you know, they looked ready for the gym. I did not. I showed up, and they said, Stephen, today is chest day. And I said, oh, boy, here we go. 
They said, how much can you bench press? And I said, well, the most that I've ever bench pressed is 275 pounds. And I kid you not, they looked at me and they laughed. And they said, you can bench more than that. And so then they proceeded to take me over to a bench press, put on 315 pounds, pick up the bar, and drop it on me. And I just, I tried to push, I could not push it. But, but let me tell you what happened. In the ensuing weeks, I went from benching 275 to 315, then to 375, then to 400, then to 425. And I'll tell you what the difference was. When they pulled the bar off the rack and basically let go, they, they kept saying this to me, Stephen, it feels heavy. It is heavy. Your problem is not that you can lift it. You're scared to. You're scared to. You're scared of the weight. You're scared of the feeling your elbows are about to shoot out of your arms. You're scared of all that, and that is your block. You're not progressing because you've been mentally blocked, not because you've been physically blocked. And so throughout that, the course of that year, they, they had me do new PRs in all the different lifts, squats, deadlift, bench press. But what I needed, and they saw it in my eyes, and I guess they just knew it, that I needed a mind shift. I needed to stop fearing the weight and actually lift it. Now I got to tell you, today it would take a whole lot more than a mind shift for me to push 400 pounds on a bench press, okay? I would need hydraulics or a crane to pull that off. But joking aside, I believe as Christians, if we desire to set some new PRs in our faith, in our journey as we follow Jesus Christ, we are going to need some mind shifts. We're going to have to get past some mental blocks and allow the Spirit of God to change the way we think so that then we can change the way we live, right? And so we're going to be going through a couple of mind shifts. And the first mind shift that I believe we need to reach new heights in our spiritual maturity is we need to shift from indecision to decisiveness. See, following Christ always begins with a decisive decision. I want you to think about the disciples that Jesus first called. When he looked at Peter and some of the other disciples, and he said to them, follow me. He was asking them to make a choice. A very decisive choice. And here's the thing. In, those, in that day, for, them, for him to ask these disciples to follow him, they knew what he was asking. It was not some small thing. They knew that in following him, they would have to put their careers on hold. Right? It says that Peter, when he was called by Jesus, he had his fishing nets. He dropped them and he left them. And Jesus said, You're, he said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so when Peter said yes to Jesus, he was saying, I'm going to take a pause on all of my career goals. Right? He also knew, to use Peter as an example, that there were going to be extended periods of time where he would be absent from his family. We know from Scripture that Peter was a married man 
For him to follow Jesus, up and follow Jesus, would have required him to make some sacrifices when it came to his family. And then other disciples, for example, Matthew, for him to follow Jesus, it would have required him to stop, in essence, being a tax collector. And let me tell you, Rome was not going to have him back once he quit that job. So he knew that he was going to be risking not only his reputation, but possibly his life. See, it was a very decisive decision that Jesus was asking the disciples, follow me. It wasn't like a Twitter invite, right? Follow me. That's not what Jesus was saying. See, unfortunately, in our culture, our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus has kind of become convoluted. It's become muddied. It's become unclear. You see, because we know as Christians, and this is true, I'm not arguing this is not true, but we know as Christians that a relationship with Jesus is made free through the blood of Jesus on the cross. We know as Christians that we do not earn our standing as a child of God. It is given to us freely by grace alone through faith alone. We know that. But here's the thing. Because we live in a society that receiving that free gift from God costs us virtually nothing. That is to say, it doesn't really cost us financially to follow Jesus. It doesn't usually cost us all that much socially to follow Jesus. It certainly doesn't cost us very much from a safety standpoint to follow Jesus. And really, it doesn't hinder our careers all that often to follow Jesus. So because of that, we're really not able to see that the call to follow Jesus is a decisive call to pay a cost. We're called to pay a cost. And see, we have to have a mind shift to see that. See, Jesus regularly talked about the cost it would be to follow him. If you look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, the Bible reads this. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the orders to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens, the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. Another said, Lord, first let me go bury my father because Jesus told him, follow me. And Jesus responded, let the dead bury their own dead. Now I need to kind of unpack this a little bit because what Jesus, I think, sensed from these two people is he he could smell the insincerity in their, their claims that they would follow Jesus anywhere. He could sense their indecision. He, could, he kind of felt like they would be kind of riding the fence of following him and not following him. And he was saying, no, 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 no. You need to come across the fence and follow me. It has to be a decisive decision. And so he said to the scribe, who likely would have been wealthy, hey, listen, if you choose to follow me, just know you might end up homeless. You might end up without some of the delicacies that you are accustomed to. You might have to make a pretty sizable 
financial decrease in your life to follow me. To the man who said, let me go bury my father first. He was essentially saying, in order to follow me, you have to put me first before your family. Now, I need to point out something. He's not, Jesus is not saying you can't attend your father's funeral. See, most scholars believe that what Jesus was saying to this man, this man was basically asking, hey, my father, you know, I have a relationship with him. He's maybe older, and I want to kind of stick around, spend time with him before I follow you. So let me just wait till he passes He's near that age, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus said, no. To follow me requires sacrifice, sometimes a sacrifice away from those people that you dearly love so that you can do the work that I'm calling you to do. See, there is a decisive decision on the table when it comes to following Jesus Christ. And it's a decision that involves cost. See, in today's world, I've noticed something, though, and this is true of me, too, so I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching collectively together at all of us. I've noticed that people can be really fickle and indecisive in their commitment to things, especially when it comes to things like faith. Say, we commit to a myriad of things, but when it comes to serving God or growing in our faith, we really, really, really hesitate to commit. And I believe that this is driven by this thing that uh, Generation Z calls FOMO, F-O-M-O, the fear of missing out. See, we believe that if we make a decision to commit to Jesus or commit to follow Jesus, that we're going to miss out on all these other things that we actually, if we're honest, consider more important than what Jesus is calling us to. I know I'm guilty of this at times. Right? Maybe you're indecisive about being plugged into a small group because you're like, well, I'll miss all these other things, football games or whatever. Maybe you're indecisive about getting into that mentoring group because you're like, it's a lot of time. It takes an hour or a month or whatever or a week or every other week. I could use that hour somewhere else. Maybe you're convinced that you're like, you know what, I feel the Lord leading me to serve in a ministry here or to serve somewhere in my community, to make an investment in somebody else, but honestly, that's going to cut into my me time, and so I won't do it. See, when we do this, we're essentially saying, I want Jesus, I want him, I want everything he has to offer me, but I really don't want to lose anything in the process. All of us are guilty of having this mindset at times. But we need to understand that spiritual growth hinges on our ability to understand that following Jesus, you have to pay a cost. It's going to cost you. This fear of missing out on its head. Because here's the thing, I believe that we should really be saying fear of missing out when we don't commit to Jesus. Because it's really us who misses out when we do not commit to Jesus. Here, let me explain what I mean. So, believe that Jesus teaches us that if we are committed to him and the gospel and those things that he calls us to do, that when we miss out, we really actually never miss out. Right? Check out this verse, Mark 10, 29-31. It says this, 
Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come, but many who, will, who are first will be last, but the last will be first. So I used to read this verse to my mom all the time. When I was in Chicago at Moody, I made a decision my sophomore year to start attending church on the west side of Chicago at a place called Lawndale Community Church. The thing about Lawndale, that community, is this is a really rough neighborhood. Lots of crime. Lots of violent crime. So my mom would call me on the phone Saturday night, and, and at the very beginning, when I first started attending the church, she would call me, and she said, is it really, do you really think you should go there? I mean, you kind of, you haven't walked through that bad neighborhood. There's times where your church commitment will keep you there late at night, and you'll be walking through that bad neighborhood. Do you really, is it really worth it? And I would read this verse to my mom. I'd say, mom, listen, here's the thing. I believe this. If, if something were to happen to me, but you were of the mindset that you were saying, you were like praying to God with an open palm and saying, I trust you with my son's protection. I trust you, I trust you. I want him to go there because I believe you're calling him to do this. And then something were to happen to me, I told her, Mom, here's the thing, God will bless you tremendously if you'll just trust him. And then when I moved halfway across the country to Texas, my mom lives in Avon. At first she was like, we're going to move to Texas. I'm really, I'm really going to miss you. Like, I won't see you that often. You know, you're going to probably get married and have kids, and I'm going to be far away from those kids. And, and I would read this verse to my mom and say, Mom, he will redeem the time we miss together. He will redeem it, and he will pour out blessing upon blessing. And there's been times in my life where my mom has done the same thing to me. Because I said this verse to her many times in times where I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't know if I want to do this. What a, it's going to cost a lot. It's going to be a tough decision to make this. And I don't know. I don't know if I want to go through with it. She would read this verse to me and say, remember, when you give up, to, you actually gain. When you give up for Jesus, you actually gain. And I'm here to tell you today concerning those things you fear you will miss out on. If you decide to serve Jesus, if you make the decision to step, in, to step away from indecision and into decisiveness, saying, God, I don't care what it costs, I want to be faithful to you, that God will multiply those things that you, quote, miss out on by 10, 100, or 1,000 times. Now, before moving on, I want to harp on our most frequently used excuse when it comes to our indecision of following Christ. I know I've used this many, many times. I would do more, Jesus, but I'm just too busy. I know, again, I've used this excuse, but I want you to see this. This is one of the most profound passages in Scripture when it comes to this excuse of, God, I'm just too busy. Luke 10, 38-42 says this, While they were traveling, he, that is Jesus, entered into a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Notice this. But Martha was distracted 
by her many tasks. And she came up to the Lord and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve you alone? Tell her to give me a hand. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the right thing, and it will not be taken away from her. When we go to the Lord and we're saying, God, I would do more, but I'm just so busy. I've got all these different tasks. I believe that God tries to speak to us in those moments and say, yeah, but one thing is necessary. To sit at Jesus' feet, to focus on your growth in him, to to not allow your life to become a list of so many tasks that you have to complete, but to simply allow God to move in your life. Busyness can distract us from the one thing that is necessary, that is devotion to Christ, devotion in our relationship to Christ, to learn from Christ, to sit at his feet, to follow him, to follow him where he goes. See, Rick Warren says this, whatever you are committed to is what you become. See, we have to, if we're going to grow in our relationship with Christ, we have to be committed to growing. You cannot grow on accident. You can't develop spiritual maturity on accident. So it's time for us to stop being indecisive in our relationship with Christ and become decisive. Another mind shift that we have to have is we need to shift from willpower to his power. From willpower to his power. So years ago, uh, my family and I, we were at the Elgin's house, Lee and and Jan Elgin, their family. We were there for a New Year's Eve party thing. And uh, Sam, their, well, their only son, uh, was was in the basement and he had a Nintendo Switch. Now, I, I had never at this point played a Nintendo Switch, but Sam was asking me, is it okay for Sophia, my youngest daughter at the time, or my oldest daughter at the time, she was four, is it okay for her to play the Switch? I said, well, what games do you have? Because we're like, we've never, she's never really played video games. He said, well, we have Mario Kart. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a harmless game. It's a, it's a game where Mario characters go around racing in cars. There's a picture of Mario Kart on the screen. So I, I leave. I'm like, Mario, Mario Kart is fine. I go upstairs. I come downstairs again, and Sophia is playing this game. And I'm watching her on the little joystick, and I'm watching the screen, and Sophia is zipping around turns, going through tunnels. I mean, she's like winning the race. And I'm like, she's four. And I got to tell you, this is honestly what happened. My mind started making the old cash register noise. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And I'm like, you know what we got to do? I almost went upstairs and told Ashley, we got to enter Sophia into one of those video game tournaments. You know, the ones where they make millions of dollars? I used to tease kids all the time. You can't make a living playing video games. Now they make millions of dollars. There's people making more than, you know, professional football players that play video games. But I did. I was like, oh my goodness, she's a prodigy. She's flying through. I can't even drive a race car game without crashing. And it was then that Sam looked at me and said, Stephen, I said, yes. He said, we turned on this thing on the switch called steering assistance. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? He's like, it means that no matter what she does, she's not going to crash. <laughs> I was like, ah. So 
that whole idea of the video game tournament out, out the window. But here's the thing. I think that as Christians, I think a lot of times we try to go through life and we try to steer ourselves and, and create in ourselves our own spiritual growth and we never turn on the steering assistance. You know, out of curiosity, moments after we, we uh, saw Sophia playing the game, I was like, Sam, go ahead and do me a favor. Turn it off. Turn off the steering assistance. Let's see what happens. Well, as you can imagine, countless crashes, wreck after wreck after wreck and falling off the edge and all these different things. And... And that, I think, a lot of times is what we are like in our growth with God. We try so hard to deal with some of these crazy things in our lives on our own, and we simply can't do it. We've got to have a mind shift and turn on that steering assistance by asking God to give us the strength. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says this, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, we've got to ask God to turn on the steering assistance. John 15, 5 says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. I love this phrase. I try to repeat this phrase to myself. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, as the demands of life are screaming at us, as the deadlines are looming over our heads, as the problems in our life are crushing down on us, and we feel like we're suffocating and we can't take anymore, as those challenges in life seem too heavy to bear, in our own strength, we will crash, just like Sophia in that game. But as we're zipping around the racetrack of life, distracted by all the noise, I believe that God is in our minds, whispering to us ever so softly, without me, you can do nothing. He's saying, trust me, let me take the wheel, let me take over, let me assist you in steering through those terrifying turns, so that way you don't crash. He's simply saying, trust me. So another mind shift we have to have if we hope to grow spiritually is we need to move from complacent to repentant. Complacent to repentant. I See, I think it's easy as Christians, I know this happens to me, where it's easy to start ignoring sin in my life, but then very quickly point it out in other people. And i got to tell you, that hinders your spiritual growth. I want to read this scripture to you. It says this, Why do you, it's from Matthew 7, 3-5, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take out the beam of wood in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. So I had a friend that, I don't even remember what friend it is, but this memory is very vivid in my mind. They had a van, an older van, and it had a perpetual check engine light on, okay? But then they had electrical tape, and they taped over it on their dashboard. And I remember saying to them, like, 
<laughs> Yo, <laughs> uh, that's probably a problem. <laughs> you know, if that's flashing, generally that's a bad sign. And they said to me, no, the sensor is broken, and so I tape over it because it's a false warning. But here's the thing I've learned about check engine lights in our life that the Spirit of God puts in our hearts. They're never false warnings. They're not false warnings. But here's what we often do as followers of Christ. We tape over them. We tape over them. We ignore, like there's not, we ignore it like there's not a problem. And then the, the flashing light is going, but we've become numb to it. And we ignore that sin. And meanwhile, we are very, very quick to point out the flashing light on everybody else's and everybody else's life. We look at them and say, hey, did you notice that your check engine light's on? They're like, well, so is yours. Well, did you see I taped over it, though? So it doesn't matter. See, that, that has to change. We have to change that mindset if we hope to grow in our relationship with Christ. We need to be quick to admit our sins. We need to be quick to ask for forgiveness. And then we need to take steps to change. We have to do that if we hope to grow in our lives. I love this. Psalms 19, 12 through 14. I think it gets at the heart of this, this mind shift of moving from complacency to repentance. It says this, who perceives his unintentional sins? I love this. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. In other words, there's sin in my life that I'm ignoring or I'm unaware of. Lord, reveal that to me. Even let me change that. But then he goes on to say, moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. In other words, keep me from doing the things I already know that are wrong. Keep me from that. Do not let them rule over me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That last section, that should be our prayer. That will help us move from complacent to repentant because we'll be saying, God, every part of my life, whether I eat or I drink or whatever I do, Lord, allow me to do it all for your glory. Forgive me for those things that I'm doing that I'm not even aware of, but then also forgive me and keep me from those things that I do that I know are wrong. That's the kind of mindset we have to have when it comes to our sin. Now, one last mind shift we're going to focus on this morning that will help us mature in our faith. We need to have a mind shift to move us from selfish to selfless. From selfish to selfless. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, I love this, it says, Have the same mind as Jesus Christ. Right there, mind shift. Have the same mind as Jesus Christ. And it says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. I love that. It's, we literally receive an instruction to have a mind shift to move away from selfishness to selflessness. But to understand this morning what it means to have that sort of mind shift, I really need to address a buzzword and, and sort of a, a prevailing popular ideology, and that is 
this thing called self-care. Self-care. It's a very popular word that's used. It's an important thing. I'm not going to debunk it. But I want you to hear where I think it may lead us astray. See, we have to understand the difference between selfie, or selfie, healthy self-care and selfishness. Right? Because the lines sometimes get muddied. See, self-care and selfishness, they're hard to determine when you cross that line. I believe this. As followers of Christ, we tend to go to one of these two extremes. We tend to go to one of these two extremes. One, we don't give of ourselves really at all because we fear that in doing so and in serving others, we will interfere with our self-care. There's times where we get like that. We are like, I'm not going to commit to anything because I want to protect my self-care. But then on the flip side, there are times where we give so much of ourselves and we say yes to everything and we're overcommitted and overwhelmed and overstressed and then we kind of develop this savior complex where we're like, I got to save everybody. I've got to do everything because if I don't do it, it won't happen. I know I teeter-totter between those two extremes at times. But see, I think the key to keeping ourselves from turning self-care, which is a good thing, into selfishness, or turning serving others, which is a good thing, into this idea of having a savior complex, I think that there is a way to balance that, and I believe it's finding balance between Mark and Mark. Now, I'll explain what that means. There are passages in Mark that I think reveal to us the sweet spot of finding the difference between self-care or balancing self-care and selfishness and over-serving and burnout, right? And so if you look at Mark 1.35, this is Jesus talking about Jesus. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left his house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I love that. It says here, Jesus, he got away from everybody. He was like, you guys figure out what you're doing. I'm going away to take care of my soul. Right? There probably was still people he could have been healing. There were certainly people he could have been sharing the gospel with. He could have been discipling his disciples. But he got away to serve God. Or to, to pray. And I got to tell you, prayer is one of those things that, that is a necessary thing in our self-care. I heard this said and I... I try to, try to live this principle out in my life. There's a pastor, Austin DeLoach, in Georgia. He said this phrase to me a couple years, it was a year ago. He said, there is a way to do the work of God that ruins the work of God in you. I used to be so busy serving God that you ruin the work of God in you. One more, uh, I promise we'll fly through these. Mark 4, 35, 40 says this. This is the second Mark passage. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, right, he had just got done doing ministry, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. They looked at him along, uh, they looked at him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. They were trying to follow him, right? Like, Jesus is leaving, we need to follow him. It says, a furious squall came up, the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. It says that Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. 
Then the wind died down. It was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? See, in this story, again, Jesus was getting away from the crowd. He wanted to leave. And he was taking a nap. I believe this. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do, follower of Christ, person that's very busy, that's overwhelmed, is just take a nap. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. But here's the difference. Jesus wasn't lazy. He was taking a nap. He was resting. He was doing self-care so that he could serve other people. See, that's the thing. True and good self-care is taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others. And that's what Jesus modeled for us. But on the flip side, the Christian life is still sacrificial and is not always naps and prayer times. Sometimes it looks like the opposite of self-care. And this is where you find the balance. Sometimes it looks like laying down your life for the sake of other people. The balance. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I hope that this verse sets the temperature for our mindset when it comes to serving others. Yes, it's important for us to take care of ourselves, but we also need to seek first to serve before we are served. Let's pray. God, again, my prayer is just simply that you would help us have these mind shifts, that we would take on these new ideas and new mindsets that come from your spirit, Lord. And then in the process, we would grow in spiritual maturity, godliness. And that we rely not on our strength, but on yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.